Hello, dear friends at HTBB. I'm so sorry that I wasn't able to join you um, uh, in the last uh, a few weeks ago, uh, but obviously events overtook us. And um, I'm really, really looking forward, all being well, uh, to coming uh, next year. And uh, I miss so much certain things about your wonderful country. Uh, the main thing is Nas Nasi Lama, uh, also Nasi Goreng, also banana leaf meals, also those wonderful noodle meals and uh, various other things. Oh, and drinking coconut water out of a real coconut. Um, I also miss you. Um, uh, oh, the hawkers, to go for a late night hawkers meal. Uh, there's nothing like that in England. Um, anyway, enough of that. I haven't come to talk about food, although that is one of my favorite subjects. Uh, I want to talk to you uh, about something that the Lord does in us in order for him to use us and his using of us does not destroy us. And uh, many of us want to move in the power of the Spirit. Uh, we long uh, to see more of, of God's power manifest through our lives to touch others. And uh, that's a good thing to want to do. And uh, uh, sometimes we can think that the, the main thing we need to do is to be filled with the Spirit in order to move in the power of the Spirit. And that is important. It is important to be filled with the Spirit. But I believe there is another ingredient uh, that causes us to be able to move in the power of the Spirit. And in order to look at this, I want to begin uh, by looking at Jesus and the circumstances of his baptism. In Luke um, chapter 3, verse 21, we read, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now we can imagine um, that that was all Jesus needed. What a wonderful moment that was. Uh, what a wonderful moment. And, and it's a Trinitarian moment. Um, as the son of God came out of the waters, uh, the spirit of God filled him and the voice of his father spoke to him and declared over him. Uh, the Trinity appears there in all the, the, the glory of God. And, uh, and yet, and yet, that wasn't um, even for Jesus uh, the only thing. Listen to this. The next thing we read, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've just had a wonderful encounter with God, if, if God the Holy Spirit has filled me, if God the Father has spoken his love over me, and the next thing that happens is I find myself in a desert, in a wilderness, my reaction is, what went wrong? How did I get here? How did this happen? And yet, there is a reason. Listen to this. What happens to Jesus after 40 days in the desert? We read verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. You see, the spiritual equation is this. 
filled with the Spirit, plus led by the Spirit into the desert, equals returning in the power of the Spirit. That's how it works. We all love the filled with the Spirit bit, but the Spirit leading us, or in the Greek, it's even stronger than that, driving us into the desert. Because God does something in the desert in our hearts and in our lives. And I just want in these few minutes to look at three things that the Spirit does in the desert, three of the purposes of God in the desert. And just before we do, I want to mainly couch this in in the life of Moses and the people of Israel. You know, for Moses, um, he um, uh, he's when you read his story at the beginning, uh, when he sees uh, an Egyptian slave driver killing uh, a Hebrew slave in Egypt, and he kills the Egyptian, and the next day he sees two Hebrew slaves fighting, and Moses intervenes, and one of the slaves says, um, who made you Lord and Master over us? Uh, are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And uh, the fact that the guy says, who made you Lord and Master over us? You get the impression that hot-headed, bad-tempered Moses thought he was a cut above the Hebrew slaves. You see, he was brought up in Pharaoh's household. He had the best education Egypt could buy. He had all the culture of Egypt. And the slave says, you're not Lord and Master over us. And Moses realizes, oh no, I've been found out. I have been discovered. And um, he flees to the desert um, of Midian. And he spends 40 years in the desert of Midian. And after 40 years in the desert, he comes across a bush that's a little bit different to all the other bushes. And God speaks to him from the burning bush. And God says to him, I want you to go back to Egypt and speak to Pharaoh and lead my people out of their captivity. And Moses has this gorgeous argument with the Lord. I love it. And he he raises every objection. Um, and uh, one of the things he says is, is, who am I that I should go? Who am I? I am but a nothing. I am but a worm. And you know, that's what I say before I go places. I say to my friends, who am I that I should go and speak to the people at HTBB in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia? I am but a worm. I am but a nothing. And I say that hoping that my friends will say, oh, come on, Mike, you're not bad. You're pretty. You're a pretty good looking preacher, Mike. Now, if Moses was saying, who am I? Hoping that God would say, Mike, uh, Moses, you're pretty good. He was disappointed because the Lord says, I will go with you. Now, if that was me, I would have said, Thank you, Lord, for that sentiment. That's not quite the answer to my question. Let me see if I can rephrase the question for you. It goes something along the lines of, who am I that I should go? Do you see what happens? The Lord doesn't answer Moses' question. Why? Because Moses is asking the wrong question. Instead of asking, who am I? He should have been asking, who are you? Because that's what matters. And that's one of the lessons of the desert. It's it's discovering God in a deeper way, but we're going to get to that later. You see, in God's version of democracy, one person plus God is always a majority, always a majority. 
And then the second part of the answer I love because the Lord says, I will go with you. And then he says, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. And if it was me, I'd be, oh, great. I just want a sign. Lovely. If I get a sign, that's fine. Do you know what the sign was? The Lord says to him, after you've been to Egypt, spoken to Pharaoh, led the people out of their captivity, you'll come back to this mountain and worship me here with them. Now, again, if it was me, I would have said, thank you, Lord. Um, but what's the point of a sign after I've done it? I want a sign first. I want a sign now. You see, so often the way God's works is we see it afterwards. We see it looking back. We see his hand on our lives as we look back. And he wants us to look forward by faith. And um, we see the fruit afterwards. Well, anyway, then... Um, uh, after many other objections, uh, Moses says, uh, but I can't speak. Um, I'm not eloquent. I can't say. And it's like, what happened to Moses to turn him from this arrogant young man who thought he was lord and master over the uh, Israelite slaves into this guy that seems to have lost all confidence and says, uh, who am I? I can't speak. I can't do anything. I'm not good enough. I'm not gifted. I'll tell you what happened. 40 years in the desert happened. 40 years. There's only so many sandcastles you can build in 40 years in a desert. And you know, after 40 years in the desert, Moses was stripped of, you see, the thing about the desert is it's dry, it's arid, it's, it's quiet, it's vast, it's silent. And all the other noises are stilled. And that's where God meets with us. He meets with us in the desert places and he changes us. And so Moses goes back to Egypt, not relying now on his ability or his education or his culture, but having to rely on God who says, I will go with you. That's now all you need to know. Lean on me says the Lord to Moses. Well, anyway, here we go. There's three lessons from the desert. There's a number of others, but just three I want to look at with you. And the first two come towards the end of Israel's 40 years in the desert. Did you know that Moses spent 40 years in the desert of Midian on his own as preparation for another 40 years with Israel? Now, I tell you, I think if there's any justice in heaven, Moses' mansion will have a sea view, a swimming pool, and a lake. Poor Moses, he drew the short straw, but he was prepared by God in 40 years on his own for 40 years with Israel. And towards the end of Israel's 40 years in the desert, um, uh, this happens, and we read it in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, they're in the place where they're still in the desert and they can see the promised land. They're not in it, but they can see it. Here's the first lesson of the desert. The Lord says, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness, in the desert these 40 years, to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you 
causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. Now, do you know that's the first lesson of the desert? He humbles us. Why? Because he loves us. Because humility is huge for God. It's huge. There's a verse that comes three times in the Bible. And if in the Bible God says something once, he means it. If God says something twice, he really means it. And if God says something three times, then he really, really means it. This is deep theology I'm giving you here. And uh, this verse comes three times in the Bible, in the, the book of Proverbs, in Peter's first letter, and in the letter of James. And it goes like this. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're proud, God resists you. But there is grace that is given to those who are humble. Why? Because, because when we're humble, we're not relying on ourselves. When we're humble, we are no longer the centre of our universe. When we're humble, it's not that we think badly of ourselves, it's that we begin not to think about ourselves. And in the desert, he, he humbles us, he strips us bare, we, we're, we're in silence, we, we need to trust him for, for water, for manna, for nourishment. We need to trust him to, in order to stay alive. And we discover dependence on him. And that is the art of humility. Now, I've learned that we have a choice. We can either humble ourselves or he will humble us if he loves us. And uh, I have learned that um, it's much less painful to humble ourselves. And uh, uh, do you know, but if we don't, in his love, he will work in us and change us and humble us so that when he uses us, it will not destroy us. Because if we're not humble, if we're already proud and God uses us, we start thinking, it's about me. Oh, how anointed I am. How gifted I am. How intelligent I am. How good looking I am. How well dressed I am, or whatever it might be. That must be the basis on which he uses me. And the basis on which he uses us is always grace. It's always grace. And the people that he loves to use are those who are dependent on him because he loves us too much in order to let his anointing destroy us. That's the first lesson of the desert. Here's the second one. Um, and this is when they're in the desert. This is verse 10 of Deuteronomy 8. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. And, and what he's saying is, <clears throat> when you have eaten and are satisfied in the desert, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you, even though you're not in it yet, even though you can see it from a distance. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, <clears throat> when you do eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, uh, who, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
What's the second lesson of the desert? If the first thing is humility, the second lesson is learning the secret of praise and thanksgiving when it hurts. You see, God said to them, you're not in the promised land, you're in the wilderness, you're still eating manna, but I want you to praise the Lord your God. I want you to praise me for the good land I have given you, even though it's not yours yet. Because if you learn to praise me in the desert, then when you're in the land flowing with milk and honey and you build fine houses and settle down and your herds and flocks grow large and all you have is multiplied, then you won't forget me and then you won't think it's all about you. And so the secret of praise and thanksgiving, you know, anyone can praise God when everything's going well. What sorts out the spiritual men from the boys and the spiritual women from the girls is those who praise him when things are tough, who learn to praise him in the desert, in the barren place, and to praise him in advance for his goodness, because we understand that God is good all the time. Whether we feel it or not, whether we're living in the fruit of that right now or not. And again, it's something we need to learn. Now, the people of Israel, they loved to moan. They, they were complainers and they learned it in Egypt. And you know, for poor Moses, he gets them to the Red Sea and they start complaining, we're going to drown or the Egyptians are going to kill us. Why do we listen to you, Moses? The Red Sea parts, a miracle. They get to the other side. Pretty soon they're moaning again. We've got no water. Why do we listen to you, Moses? We're going to die of thirst. Oh, it's terrible. He strikes a rock with his staff and liters liters of San Pellegrino water comes out of the rock. And then they're moaning again. We haven't got any food. We're going to die of hunger. Manna comes from heaven every day. Then they're moaning. Oh, it's only manna again. We're always getting manna. When we were in Egypt, we had garlic and cucumbers. And now we've got to eat manna. I mean, I tell you, the easy thing for God was getting Israel out of Egypt. The hard bit was getting Egypt out of Israel. You see, even though they were delivered from their slavery, they still had the mentality, the mindset of slaves. And when they were in Egypt, they complained and they groaned under their labors. They were free, but they were still slaves in their hearts. And God says in the desert, hey, learn to be grateful, learn to praise me, learn to give me thanks. Let, let's break the power of the mentality of slavery over you. For many of us, we've been set free from the old life. And yet, tragically, we still have the mentality of slaves. Now, I don't know about you in Malaysia, uh, but in England, our favourite hobby is moaning and groaning and complaining. We love to moan, groan and complain. And the main thing we love to moan and groan about is the weather. And we come together every day and we're saying, oh, isn't it terrible weather? Oh, it's raining again. Oh, it's this drizzle that keeps you all damp. And I don't remember the last time I saw the sun. Oh, it's such a grey day. And we enjoy it. We love it. It, it. It's something to talk about with others. And, and then one day, usually in July, the sun comes out. And then we come together and we say, oh, it's really hot. Oh, it, we're all going to die of skin cancer. Oh, there's going to be a drought. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, it's so hot. You see, we love to moan and groan. 
And you know what? The culture that's in our country is the culture that's often, sadly, in the church. So often in the church, we find it easier to moan and groan and complain than to give thanks. I remember a few years ago, I, well, I'll just say this first. Um, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to confess this. I'm, I don't like mornings. I don't do mornings very well. In fact, I have a personal theological conviction that mornings came in with the fall. Uh, I believe that God created afternoons and evenings, but I struggle to believe that he could have created something as horrible as mornings. And they say there's two kinds of Christians in this world. Those who wake up in the morning and say, good morning, Lord. And those who wake up in the morning and say, good Lord, it's morning. Well, I've always been a good Lord, it's morning person. And then I listened to this talk and the speaker was saying, how he learned the secret of living uh, every day in praise and thanksgiving. And he said, the secret is this, it's how you, what you do when you wake up. And he said how he made it a practice that every morning when his alarm clock went, he would wake up and the first thing he would say is, Lord, I thank you that I, today I'm alive. I thank you that there is air in my lungs. I thank you um, uh, for my body. And he would, he would pull up his duvet uh, his his blanket thing, and he would wiggle his toes. He would say, I thank you for my toes. I thank you for my feet. I thank you for my ankles. And then he'd get out of bed and he would say, I thank you, Lord, for um, for my calves, for my knees. And he'd go all the way up his body, he'd thank the Lord for his room and for his home and everything. And he said, after 10 minutes of this, I was set fair for the day. Or when I heard that, I thought, I'm going to do that. It's going to be life-changing. So I put the alarm clock on. I, I was so excited I could hardly sleep that night. In the morning, the alarm went off and I remembered, I opened my eyes and I said, good morning, Lord. And I said, I thank you that this morning I am alive, that there is air in my lungs. And then I pulled up my duvet and I couldn't see my feet. And I thought, oh no, it's all gone wrong already. And then I all thought, I know what to do. Do you know what I did? I thank the Lord for my stomach instead, which he has fearfully and wonderfully made and which I have helped him with. You see, there's always stomachs that can get in the way. But God is good all the time. Praise him. Learn the secret of praise and thanksgiving when it hurts, because then when he prospers you, when he blesses you, in life or in ministry or in both, then you don't think it's about you. What's the final lesson from the desert? And the most important, very quickly, as I finish, uh, you, can, this is, you can find this in Hosea uh, chapter 2, verse 14. And the story of Hosea is a story of a God who says to Israel, I, I loved you like a husband, I was faithful to you, and you behaved like a prostitute, and you lifted up your skirt to every passing idol. And the Lord says in the middle of this, in Hosea 2.14, Therefore, I am now going to allure her, to allure Israel. I will lead her into the wilderness, the desert, and there I will speak tenderly to her. What's the purse? purpose of the desert, the ultimate purpose, 
is it's in the desert he allures us he wins us over in the desert where all other voices are stilled we can hear him speaking tenderly to our hearts he allures us he takes us back to our first love he takes us deeper into our relationship with him and do you know i used to think the desert times the emotional deserts, the mental deserts, the physical deserts, the spiritual deserts. I used to think they were the devil's place, but they're not, they're God's place. In this desert time, when we're in lockdown here and I, I, I can't see anyone, it's my 11th week. Do you know what? I've loved spending time sitting with him, pouring out my heart to him, and sometimes just saying, Lord, I'm just going to sit in your presence. Don't even want to say anything. Just want to be with you. I have known an intimacy with him that I don't want to give up for anything. In the desert, he allures us. He speaks tenderly to us that we might hear his voice. What, what's the purpose? Finally, finally, it's this. At the end of Song of Songs, which is a, a story of a king representing the Lord and his maiden, uh, the lover and the beloved, the maiden representing us, the church. And it talks about the wooing and the love affair. Right at the end, in um, Song of Songs, chapter 8, the friends say this, Who is this of the maiden? Who is this coming out of the desert, leaning on her lover? He drives us into the desert that we might come out of the desert, leaning not on our own understanding, leaning not on our own giftings or self-confidence or, 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 or anything, but leaning on the Lord who is our lover. He wants us to love him about all, above all things because it's lovers who make the best evangelists. Have you, have you ever met someone who's just fallen in love? They don't shut up about the person they're in love with. Lovers want to be like the one they love. They want to please the one they love. That's how we change. Don't despise the desert. Wait for him. Let him meet you there. He has an appointment for you. And the purpose is to come out of the desert not just filled with the Spirit, but moving in the power of the Spirit. Hey folks, love you very much, praying for you. You've got an amazing bunch of leaders and uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. It's been a privilege uh, to spend uh, a little bit of today with you. God bless you.